and welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, its director. Today we have two guests, the first of whom is Dennis Kwok, a barrister by profession. He's widely known as an advocate for democracy, human rights, and the rule of law in Hong Kong. He was a founding member of the Civic Party and a member of the Legislative Council from 2012 to 2020. Mr. Kwok led the campaign in combating international human trafficking and better protection and fairer treatment for refugees in Hong Kong. Among other accomplishments, he co-sponsored a private member's bill to combat international human trafficking and modern slavery. On November 11, 2020, he was disqualified from the Legislative Council, along with three other lawmakers of the pan-democratic camp, by the central government in Beijing at the request of the Hong Kong government. Mr. Kwok is currently a resident senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. Our second guest is Johnny Patterson in London, who is the co-founder and policy director of Hong Kong Watch. He was the founding director of the organization between 2017 and 2020, and is now responsible for overseeing research and policy work. He has authored a number of Hong Kong Watch's in-depth reports, including on why Hong Kong matters to China as an international financial hub, and on the abuse of the public order ordinance. He's a regular commentator on Hong Kong and international media, and has been published in The Spectator, The Independent, Time, The Financial Times, and South Morning China Post. Today, the topic is going to be the risks of investing in China. Dennis, why don't you begin? Thank you, Bob, and uh, thank you uh, for the Westminster Institute for um, hosting this talk. Um, Johnny and I, we've been writing about this uh, subject for a while, and this is the principal uh, area of my research at Harvard which is looking at the uh, political and legal risks uh, surrounding uh, international companies and NGOs that have investment and uh, operations in China. And I think um, for companies to understand um, uh, these issues, they need to look at the politics of China and understand that a lot of the uh, decisions and uh, regulatory uh, policies that are coming out of China are really motivated by uh, politics as much as uh, legal ones. And um, as you know, uh, legal developments and politics uh, go hand in hand in China uh, and also increasingly these days in Hong Kong. And when I look at um, uh, Wall Street firms such as BlackRock and UBS and Blackstone and what have you, um, uh, calling for investors to double down on China because they see that there is a great investment opportunity. The question arises is whether we are really being honest about the risk that um, uh, is so, uh, uh, associated with uh, investment in China because we are looking at a country that is increasingly autocratic, increasingly obsessed with national security. Now, on the point of national security, um, I think those of us in the West need to understand that when the communists talk about national security, it is not uh, the, in a traditional sense as we understand it in the West uh, about military security, about um, uh, political and uh, territorial 
security. Um, when they talk about national security in uh, China, they really mean a whole range of issues from key industries, key infrastructure projects, uh, uh, of course, also talking about um, energy security, but we also uh, uh, talk about uh, data security in China when it comes to national security. And what is data security? And also cultural security, you know, a film uh, showing in the cinemas could be uh, regarded as endangering national security or a piece of writing that someone puts out, uh, what we call cultural security can also be part of national security. So first of all, the first point I wanna make, Bob, is that we've got to understand that national security is a broad, uh, broad spectrum of uh, interest. And um, a financial firm going into China uh, can uh, get entangled with national security without really knowing it, because Xi Jinping has said in 2017 that financial security is a key part of national security. So when these Wall Street firms go into China, taking with them US pension funds, um, they are actually getting into the national security realms of the PRC. So um, when people ask me, why did uh, they crack down on the end uh, financial uh, IPO, which is one of the large, largest IPOs in the world, and they um, pull the plug on them a week before the launch date of the IPO, which has never happened before, and why did they uh, effectively put Jack Ma under house arrest for, uh, for a few months uh, and um, forces um, Alibaba, Tencent uh, to give out, uh, uh, you know, almost, I think, a thousand million, a uh, hundred billion dollars, a uh, hundred billion renminbi in donation, quote, and then quote, to the state uh, and forces the CEOs of ByteDance and Pinduoduo to uh, step down. Now, all these is, um, uh, there are multiple factors behind it, but one, one of them is um, that these firms are growing too big and hard to control from uh, the eyes of the party. But also um, it is because uh, financial security is an important part of national security. And for them, uh, Tencent and Alibaba with their uh, financial payment services, such as uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay is growing way too big. Uh, and out of the control of the state that um, they want to uh, bring them into uh, uh, control. But also, I think the politics of it is important because when people ask me, uh, Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, was it about anti-corruption? Yes. Was it about taking out his political rivals? Yes. The, the lesson to be learned is that when they pursue a policy, it is never just about one policy goal. It is always multi multifaceted. And um, I use the case of Ant Financial and Alibaba and Tencent to illustrate that um, for them, it is about financial security. Yes, it is about uh, national security and bringing these companies under control. Yes, it's also about uh, Xi Jinping's personal uh, political capital, that for him to do these policies in China is actually very popular. It is a very populist move. Uh, uh, on the part of Xi Jinping, because we've got to understand that he has alienated a lot of the party elites in China by uh, the, the uh, anti-corruption campaign and also the uh, total consolidation of power and prestige uh, on himself uh, becoming lifetime president. He needs the support of the masses. He needs the support of the 600 million people in China who are currently living under 1,000 renminbi per month. Now, for him to take down 
uh, uh, Jack Ma and forces these people to hand out billions to the state. Imagine yourself as someone who's living in the rural parts of China or on the, on the third or four, fourth line city in China, you know, um, struggling to uh, pay the tuition fees and the hospital fees of uh, uh, your parents and your kids. And um, looking at Xi Jinping taking billions of dollars away from the richest man in China and giving it out to the masses and telling them that I will take care of your problems is actually uh, quite um, understandable and also quite uh, a smart way of looking at it from the political point of view. And Xi Jinping's number one consideration right now and the only consideration for him is how to secure his lifetime presidency and to um, bring everything under control and to uh, uh, have people like Jack Ma hand out billions of dollars will uh, endear him, I, I would argue, to a lot of people in China. And the same goes down to why he wants to crack down on the private education sector. Because again, imagine if you are someone who's struggling to uh, get your school into the private tutoring schools to learn English in order to get him into a good college, and you're struggling with that, Xi Jinping took care of that problem for you by cracking down on private education so that everyone is equal or in a more equal setting. So again, um, bringing these education and private companies down uh, has a political aspect to it. And what is next is what is um, uh, a lot of people thinking. Because when you invest in China, you are looking at an environment where next week, when uh, the party decides that healthcare is another uh, problem they want to tackle, all your investment in private healthcare companies and hospital could go down the drain within a week. We've seen how billions of dollars of investment have been wiped off the capital markets just on the basis of a decision within a few days implemented by the party. Um, and a lot of people, I, I'm a lawyer by background, Bob, as you said, a lot of the lawyers in corporate finance been telling me over the years that, oh, you know, the structure that um, these companies list in New York, in London, um, yeah, uh, technically speaking, the VIEs, uh, what we call the variable interest entities, are technically illegal in China because in China you can't have um, uh, uh, companies that are foreign, uh, effectively foreign-owned and controlled um, because under Chinese law that is not permitted. But um, when they go to list in New York, they use BVI companies and enter into a series of agreements that give the shareholders technically control over these Chinese companies, actually they don't own anything. Under Chinese law, there is no ownership by uh, these foreign shareholders and there's no control. So, um, and the corporate finance lawyers would tell me, no, but they, they won't do anything, they being China. Uh, the Chinese state will not um, uh, uh, wipe off billions off the stock market by uh, taking out these VIE structures just because they're illegal under Chinese law. Well, guess what, it happened. Um, and I don't think we can be complacent about um, the risks uh, uh, saying that uh, the Chinese government won't do this or that because it hurts their own interests. I think we're looking at a paradigm shift here, Bob. I think the previous generation of Chinese leaders have been um, have based their policy decisions on pragmatism, um, but uh, we're talking about a very new set of thinking. Uh, uh, under Xi Jinping. And take Hong Kong as an example. Um, you know, those, those of us in Hong Kong have been naive for a very long time in thinking that, oh, um, the Chinese Communist Party won't uh, rock the boat by uh, destroying one country, two system, because they need Hong Kong as an international financial center. But things have really changed. 
uh, in that number one, I think Xi Jinping and those uh, in the in the top leadership believe that they could ride out the storm, that um, China is now strong enough to take on these risks, uh, that they could uh, do what they did to Hong Kong and ride out the wave. And so far, they've been proven right, right, because look at all these Wall Street firms and Western companies that are still investing in China and Hong Kong. And, um, you know, what's the problem? Uh, we can ride it out. And also Chinese state capital or what we call red capital has become so dominated in uh, 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 Hong Kong that they believe we don't need, uh, if, even if Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs pull out, we've got China red capital in Hong Kong that could continue to sustain the capital markets. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, things have changed um, since uh, the early 2000 when uh, one country, two system came into place um, because Back then in 2001, they want to get into the WTO. Of course, they have to honor an international agreement like the Sino-British Joint Declaration because it is important for them to give the world the credibility uh, they need to say that we are responsible uh, international player. You can trust us, um, allow us into the WTO. But that has changed. They have profited from that deal uh, from long ago. And um, now they believe they're strong enough to um, uh, basically ignore uh, international and foreign perception of their policy. And to do that, they can just say, you know, you know, we, we don't really actually care about what you think uh, on the outside, as long as domestically the Communist Party is, uh, uh, you know, in a secure place in terms of its power, foreign perception no longer plays an, intact, uh, uh, an important role for them. And so for these foreign firms and uh, investment banks to go into China, um, you know, investing billions there, uh, can they actually get it out? Can, is there a, a really a, a, a channel for them to say, look, you know, I invest um, $1 billion here in China. Uh, in a year's time, I can safely get it out. I don't think anyone who understands the risk uh, involved in investing China could safely say that in one year time, my investment will be legally protected and I could remove it from uh, uh, the Chinese market, um, because policy changes are so, um, yeah, so uh, happen so quickly. And, you know, one of the points I want to make it also is that the most powerful political ideology right now in China is nationalism, aggressive nationalism. And um, uh, the highest grossing movie right now uh, is in, in the Chinese cinemas is a, a Chinese a movie called The Battle of Changjin Lake, which is um, about the Korean War and how the Chinese volunteer army uh, successfully um, defeated the U.S. Uh, um, army in uh, North Korea. Now, of course, a lot of it is fictional. A lot of it is uh, unhistorical uh, and just a propaganda movie. But uh, uh, a lot of Chinese people are going to, to, to the cinema to see this movie and the state is actively pushing for this kind of uh, nationalism um, in ways that we have not seen for a very long time. And foreign textbooks are banned. Um, uh, English is not encouraged. And as if, um, Bob, I think that they are almost preparing for a um, rupture or unilateral decoupling with the West. If you look at the laws they are implementing, uh, the anti-sanctions law, uh, the PRC security law, uh, restricting firms from removing data from China to uh, offshore locations, uh, or uh, restricting the transfer of any data from uh, uh, China to uh, a foreign entity. 
um, it is as if they are preparing for uh, a lockdown, a uh, rupture, uh, that something serious will happen, whether it is over Taiwan or the South China Sea, that they're preparing themselves for conflict uh, eventually uh, with the Western world and that a rupture will occur. And these laws and decisions of bringing back these companies from uh, overseas to China and forcing them to give money to the state uh, and uh, having them effectively segregated from the rest of the world is, I think, a very clear uh, and worrying sign about where the country is going. I always say to people, people ask me, why is that happening to Hong Kong and what happened uh, there? I think that is only a sim symptom of where the country is going. If you look at Hong Kong, um, that's one piece of the puzzle, um, but you've got to look at what's happening in Taiwan, what's happening in South China Sea, in Xinjiang, in Tibet, uh, uh, what they're doing to domestic markets, wolf warrior diplomacy, trade sanctions against Australian, the kidnapping of the two Michaels are all part of the same package, which is where the country is going. So when foreign firms go into China, they need to really understand where the country is going and um, have that wider perspective uh, in mind when they make decisions. Otherwise, I think they are doing the shareholders and the investors and the US pension uh, uh, a disservice uh, when they go in there with either they're deliberately blind to the risk or they just want to ignore or pretend that the elephant in the room is not there. So Bob, I, uh, I'll leave it to Johnny to talk about some of the other risks faced by uh, companies uh, uh, who are investing in China and happy to answer any question. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, Johnny Patterson from Hong Kong Watch, please. Thank you very much, Bob. Dennis is so eloquently and comprehensively covered so many of the political and legal risks that I just want to focus on one more area of risk, and, and that's reputational risk, the issue of the intersection between business and human rights, and particularly international corporate complicity in the worst human rights abuses taking in China, taking place in China. And um, I'd be interested to know whether your viewers are aware that most pensions in the US, Europe, or the UK are currently invested in Chinese technology firms with ties to the Xinjiang surveillance state responsible for the oppression of the Uyghurs or alternatively into Chinese state-owned banks. I'd wager that most will be unaware of this, but billions of pounds of Western pensioners are currently being invested in Chinese firms that have problematic human rights records and governments and city institutions are yet to act on that. The irony is that corporate virtue signaling is more widespread than it's ever been. The rise of ethical investing, particularly environmental, social and governance investing in the jargon of the industry has led to trillions of dollars in assets being placed under management of ESG funds. This is designed to give us all a reassuring sense of security that our pension fund money is being invested in good sustainable equities that will gener generate profit for our savings while doing a little bit of good for the world. But considering China and the way that is invested in China, exposes really the, the rank hypocrisy of many of the key industry actors. And this is the key point in our, in our new recent piece of research. The growing presence of Chinese equities in funds run by firms like JP Morgan or BlackRock mean that pretty much every pension fund in the West has serious shares in problematic Chinese equities. From CalPERS in California to the UK University's pension fund, the exposure is enormous. Just to take the UK University's superannuation scheme as an example, this is the largest private pension scheme in the United Kingdom, and it covers all university staff. Of all of the global holdings, including US, UK, 
Tencent is the second largest stock and Alibaba is the fifth largest stock. Given that 25 billion is invested in publicly listed equities, this means that the fund is investing hundreds of millions of pounds in those two firms alone. The fund also has more than 100 million invested in the China Construction Bank. The, the same story is true of so many pension funds around the world, both state held and private in the United States. There are a number of reasons to be concerned by this. Some of them are the points that Dennis has already made, but on the business and human rights intersection specifically, little attention has been paid to the human rights records of Chinese technology firms. Um, investments in Tencent and Alibaba are problematic because Chinese technology companies of their size cannot divorce themselves from the Chinese state, which is increasingly using a mixture of surveillance and technology to oppress and target minorities within its borders. Alibaba has produced facial recognition, facial recognition software that specifically targets Uyghurs and has helped construct the surveillance state in which over a million Uyghurs are currently being detained. WeChat, which is owned by Tencent, by contrast, has been accused by Human Rights Watch of censoring and putting its users under surveillance on behalf of the Chinese state. Other technology firms like iFlyTech, Hikvision, the Huawei Technology and China Mobile raise similar alarm bells. Meanwhile, Chinese state-owned banks are the largest bankroller of Chinese state-owned enterprises, who in turn have spent the last decade buying a substantial amount of strategic infrastructure in the West, as well as being the largest lenders to the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been accused of exploiting developing nations and being used as a tool for debt diplomacy. I'm happy to discuss this more, but just wanted to think briefly about what this means for us. Um, and I think the first point to say is that human rights have very often been the neglected uh, part of ESG. International human rights norms, particularly the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, have mean that investors do have a responsibility to protect human rights, but conversations we've had with city insiders and with even with people in the industry uh, who are involved in these questions show that very little has meaningfully been done to protect human rights, particularly in contexts like China, where there's so much to be gained from um, engagement for firms like BlackRock. So there needs to be regulation to counter this. Um, I mean, a second, a second question that is really important is what does it look like to inform the public and educate the public about where uh, their money is being invested? I think if the average person in the United States or the United Kingdom knew that uh, tech firms with ties to the Xinjiang surveillance state were um, in investing their money as were, were, were taking money from us, everyone would be outraged. But people don't know that. How can we educate them? Finally, um, I think there are technical questions about what it looks like to effectively use capital markets to incentivize and shape behavior in the context of um, gross rights violations. And that's a, that's a much more tricky question and one that I think would be interesting to think about deeper going forwards. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny. I would like to ask you both. Um, there was for long speculation that China would not uh, suppress Hong Kong, that it would keep its agreement with Great Britain because it wouldn't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Uh, they're well along the process of, of killing that goose, um, but do they still have the golden egg? I mean, it, it was the principal venue through which uh, Western capital came to China, but from, uh, from what you were saying, Dennis, it, it appears that th they haven't paid any penalty for this. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, um they are, they did essentially a risk calculation. 
that um, we needed to uh, honor Sino-British Joint Declaration and keep Hong Kong in the early 2000 uh, following the Hanover because, first of all, back then, uh, the Chinese capital markets have not been um, so sophisticated yet. Um, it is still at the early stage of development. They just got into the WTO. They wanted to get into the WTO, and that's why they need to honor the Sino-British Joint Declaration. It needed to portray an image that it is an international responsible player that uh, people, uh, including Western companies, can trust and invest in. And that's what they did very successfully for uh, uh, 15 to 20 years. Uh, and the Hong Kong financial markets have really changed uh, uh, in, in its color in that um, the red capital, uh, what we call Chinese capital, has now dominated uh, uh, Hong Kong markets. And if you look at the major listed firms in uh, uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, most of them are Chinese companies. And, um, and also the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock market has uh, been increasingly strong in terms of helping companies to attract capital. And in fact, they don't want uh, Chinese companies to go to New York uh, and list there. They want them to come back to list in Shenzhen, in Shanghai, in Hong Kong, because, as you said, Bob, that these Wall Street firms are going directly into China, uh, and they are letting Goldman Sachs and uh, uh, BlackRock to set up majority-owned companies in China. So the need for Hong Kong is gone, and the need to uh, placate to um, foreign perception and foreign uh, 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 government's uh, trust is no longer needed. So they feel like they are strong enough um, to ride out the storm uh, which they have created. And so far they've been proven right because the Western actors are willing to play along with this. And the so-called sanctions uh, uh, imposed by the US government is, I don't think, uh, generating any impact at all. Um, uh, you know, is not going to shift uh, policy directions and is not even going to give uh, Xi Jinping a second thought because for him, this all plays to a very uh, attractive narrative, which I alluded to uh, in my opening remarks, which is uh, aggressive nationalism. Nationalism being the most powerful ideology uh, in China right now. And the Hong Kong narrative from the state media uh, point of view and um, actually, unfortunately, a lot of mainland China people believe it. It is that the Hong Kong unrest was instigated by the Americans, by Western forces, by Western government. Uh, uh, you know, it was the CIA that 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 got the millions of people who, um, uh, or millions of Hong Kong people who took to the streets. I always say that if the CIA is really that efficient and effective, uh, you would have solved a lot of problems in your country as well. So, you know, I think. Um, it is sad that this propaganda is being believed and held up as the truth, uh, and that the, the Hong Kong unrest was instigated by foreign government, and Xi Jinping, under his leadership, has managed to uh, contain this development uh, and resolve the problem and uh, arrested all the political actors and activists uh, who were controlled by foreign governments uh, and instigated unrest. Um, so this is the narrative that which they play out in the domestic audience, and it is being absorbed as, as the truth. And that is why I think to understand the decisions coming out of China, you need to look at it from Xi Jinping and the Communist Party's perspective and what works for them. It may seem irrational for you and me to say, oh, you, why are you killing the golden goose? But from their point of view, um, they have their own logic. And... Um, it is something that you need to understand 
in order to uh, understand some of the considerations underlying those policy decisions. On a personal level, does this mean you can't return to Hong Kong now? Well, you know, um, I think anyone um, who has uh, said anything uh, or done anything that um, is not in line with what the Chinese Communist Party want is at risk. And um, myself included, um, I wouldn't say, you know, oh, you can't ever go back. I, I, I wouldn't put it as high as that. But I think uh, for a lot of uh, um, even China experts um, uh, in the West, um, those, those who have studied uh, Chinese issues, those who have um, commented on Chinese affairs, a lot of them will tell me that they won't go to China these days because of the risk. They look at what happened to the two Michaels, uh, the two Canadians. They're thinking this could be uh, me. Um, I'm sure the two Michaels didn't think or didn't ever imagine that they would be uh, arrested and held in prison for so long uh, over Meng Wanzhou. But um, the fact that it happened and the lesson again, um, I think, Bob, you've raised a very good point. The lesson I think we have um, learned from the Bang Wanzhou incident is that it was held up as a domestic victory uh, for Xi Jinping in China. You know, when Bang Wanzhou landed in the Shenzhen airport, she gave a speech thanking uh, Xi Jinping, saying, you know, how grateful I am, just a private citizen, I'm nobody, but the state went out of its way to secure my release. You know the two planes? with the one carrying Michaels and the one carrying Meng Wanzhou effectively took off at the same time. So in the past, when they do this kind of business, they would at least put out some legal procedure, you know, uh, uh, make up some excuses and, and say that, oh, the two Michaels have been released because of some blah, blah, blah reason. But these days, they don't even pretend. And the reason why they don't pretend is because hostage diplomacy works for the domestic audience that the fact that they grab the two Canadians and secure the release of Meng Wanzhou, for them, is fair game. It is what we do because we're strong now. And they don't even hide the fact that it is hostage diplomacy. And they've long, they, I, I think they've learned the wrong lesson in that they believe that hostage, hostage uh, diplomacy really works. Next time, they won't only grab two Canadians. Next time, they'll grab 10 because it worked. And that is the lesson I'm afraid they have taken out from the uh, from the Meng Wanzhou incident. Just to come back to the um, the question earlier about the golden goose, I think the other thing that's interesting, or another dimension of what's interesting about the rise of red capital and Chinese money being really dominant in Hong Kong's economy is it weakens the leverage of international businesses there. So for a lot of these businesses, Hong Kong still remains the most reliable place to raise money and to access China because Hong Kong's legal system is still better, but they are are much weaker in terms of the amount of power they have in the city than they used to be. And so you see that play out um, if, if you compare the protests in 2003 when um, the China tried to push through a national security law in Hong Kong and the business community and the democratic movement kind of stood together um, in to block it. And the, the Hong Kong government eventually backed down with the protests in 2019 when, again, the, the business community were, were very much opposed to the extradition bill, but their, their views were ignored. Um, and red capital got behind the government. And that meant that eventually um, what we've seen is all of the businesses have eventually cut out to Beijing because ultimately their access to China is the thing that they prioritize more than anything else. Um, and so then you have in 2020, HSBC, Standard Chartered, lots of the, the big firms in Hong Kong lining up to endorse the 
national security law. And that's a sign of their weakness, really. And I think what we've seen is that Hong Kong still matters to those firms quite a lot because it's much, much safer still. It may not be forever, but right now it's than some of the other places. But what we've seen is their power in comparisons, which means Beijing has more power. Yeah. Dennis, you're a barrister, so you can speak to this. As these uh, Western firms are going into China proper now to set up businesses which they own, what kind of contract law exists there that gives them any protection for their ownership and their investment? Now, for a while, um, I'm talking about the early 2000 and um, up till 2010. Um, I was invited to uh, go to Beijing University and Wuhan University uh, to talk about the rule of law um, because there was a genuine desire, I feel at least back then, that they want to improve their legal system uh, to, in order to give uh, confidence, confidence to the outside world that the Chinese legal system is something that you could depend upon. And um, the development of the civil courts uh, have uh, been happening uh, for a while, at least back then, that I could feel that they are genuine in the sense that they want to develop a more sophisticated legal system. But under the leadership of Xi Jinping, we see a lot of reversals. Um, first of all, you can't even talk about uh, uh, the independence of uh, courts and judiciary. Uh, that is a banned uh, term in China. Uh, and the rule of law, as we understand it um, in the West, is uh, uh, definitely not happening in China, um, where um, uh, uh, rule of law concepts uh, uh, and human rights and due process are not, um, are not uh, allowed to be discussed in universities and will not be practiced in the courts. So when, when companies sign contracts, um, a lot of them uh, know that there are, there are problems with Chinese law and Chinese courts. And especially if you are up against a, um, a major uh, state-owned company or um, a PRC conglomerate like Huawei, uh, and you enter into contract with them, uh, how confident are you in the judicial process in the mainland? Uh, I think those who understand it will say that um, the confidence is very low. So uh, some of them try to um, uh, breathe out by um, uh, uh, outsourcing it to uh, private arbitration tribunals uh, that is based in Hong Kong or Singapore. Uh, and um, I would argue, and I have argued in my Harvard paper published a few months ago, that even uh, uh, using Hong Kong legal system, will pose a problem for international companies if they are up against a state-owned company or a PRC conglomerate. The reason is, even if you assume that the Hong Kong courts are independent, there are now provisions in the national security law that effectively gives uh, the uh, uh, Hong Kong government and the PRC government to uh, issue certificates that are binding on the Hong Kong courts. Now, given how wide and broad national security is, Let's say I have a major investment in a financial firm in China or a uh, ownership in a very sensitive piece of uh, uh, intellectual property in China. And I go to litigation against a state-owned company or a PRC conglomerate. They can say that what you're litigating uh, uh, with, uh, the subject matter is a matter of national security. They could get the Hong Kong government to issue a certificate under Article 47 of the basic uh, of the national security law to say that this is a matter of national security. That effectively binds the Hong Kong court and take it out of the hands of the Hong Kong court. So don't tell me how uh, independent the Hong Kong courts are. 
um, when there is a law like that, which effectively imposes the will of the state on the Hong Kong courts in a piece of litigation, then you effectively are left with no protection. So I'm not saying this will happen on a daily basis, Bob. Uh, this will be something that um, is will be of concern if you are dealing with a major matter, like a major SOE contract concerning energy, financial infrastructure, uh, or uh, something that is very sensitive piece of technology, uh, etc. It's not going to happen on a daily basis, but when you're talking about really big deals, when a lot of things are at stake, the will of the state could be imposed on the courts to bend the law uh, in their favor. Um, I think what most companies are thinking is that, look, you know, it happens to the next guy, but not me. Because, you know, uh, you know my, my deal is small, you know, I don't touch on anyone's toes, I just, I'm selling toothpaste uh, uh, kind of thing. That is gonna, not going to happen with me. And that's how businessmen think, that they weigh the risk, uh, uh, you know, the pros and cons. If the risk level are uh, tolerable and there's still money to be made, then deals will continue to happen. And this is what we're seeing. I'm, I'm curious as to why now, when growth in China has slowed appreciably, when the debt problem is becoming more evident, and when massive losses have been suffered by Western offshore investment in China, that American and other firms are still lining up to go in there and put those investments at risk. It's almost an invitation, pick me again, or am I exaggerating? Well, you know, um, you, you, you know, you look at what happened in the 2008 financial, global financial crisis, a lot of people uh, were asked the same question uh, in 2008. Why didn't we see this coming? How come uh, the guys in Wall Street didn't uh, warn us about it? Because there's too much vested interest, Bob. If I am trying to sell you a China fund that I'm building, um, that I'm trying to raise billions of dollars to go into China. Am I going to tell you, look, uh, you know, at the same time, you're very, you know, disclaimer uh, that this is very dangerous and you might lose your all your investment if you invest in this? No, um, there you can't uh, rely on um, uh, people who have uh, deep vested interests to uh, be honest about the risks uh, that they are getting into. Uh, no, I, that that is the reason why I think uh, regulators and um, uh, political actors in the West should be uh, looking at tougher laws and regulations to force these firms to disclose the risks that they are actually uh, uh, investing into. Um, and you can't rely on the companies themselves to do the right thing. That is my experience with dealing with the business sector, um, that uh, only if you make it a legal requirement and that it will seriously affect their reputation and their bottom line, um, things will not happen. Can I ask you what the new economic policy announced by Xi uh, called common prosperity means for a restructuring of the Chinese economy that could affect the investment risks? Absolutely. Um, the common prosperity is uh, very much um, uh, what Xi Jinping under the new era, what they call the new era under Xi Jinping's leadership, um, if you look at the recent historic resolution that was passed by the sixth plenum a uh, week ago, which uh, is the third of its kind, um, it's only happened twice before in the history of the party, one in 1945 that effectively cemented um, Mao Zedong's uh, position in the party. 
uh, and it gave him uh, enormous uh, overriding power uh, over uh, 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 everyone else. That, that was Mao Zedong's uh, historic resolution. The second one was in 1981 under Deng Xiaoping, who basically overturned uh, Mao Zedong's uh, uh, um, leadership and his um, uh, uh, the problems that he brought over with the uh, Cultural Revolution and cemented Deng Xiaoping's thoughts into the uh, 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 the, the constitution of the CCP. Uh, being open and reform, and, and what we've seen is the 40 years of economic development. And Xi Jinping, in order to secure his uh, authority as a lifetime president uh, to the same level of Mao Zedong, basically this guy wants his portrait up on Tiananmen Square, uh, is to have his own uh, kind of footprint or mark on uh, the development of the party and the country. And this common prosperity is basically uh, taking up what Deng Xiaoping said uh, 40 years ago, um, let a small group of people become rich first. And he emphasized, let a small group become rich first, and then there will be uh, common prosperity later on. So he's effectively taking on um, what Deng Xiaoping said and bring it to the next level, uh, which is to um, restructure uh, the uh, prosperity uh, and the economy and to spread the wealth in a more equal way. Now, as I said, this is very popular for a lot of Chinese people because if you're one of the 600 million people who are living under 1,000 renminbi per, per month, that's roughly 160 US dollars per month, you're thinking, <clears throat> you know, these guys, they got rich um, and the living lives that are unimaginable uh, for uh, average Chinese people. They're flying in their private jets. They're buying chateau in France. They are, uh, uh, you know, dressed in uh, every down to their underwear is uh, luxury brands and goods uh, and living this really glamorous life. And you are stuck there thinking, you know, how come I, I, I don't have that opportunity? And for Xi Jinping to now do this is um, very popular for a lot of the average uh, Chinese people. Now, um, some would say that... Um, uh, that he's going to um, overplay his hand by pushing for Cummins' prosperity. And we are seeing some pushback on his idea that he wants to impose a property tax. It hasn't really happened on a mass scale yet, but he's definitely talking about that. Um, and you mentioned one, one point, Bob, that uh, the GDP growth in China has uh, been uh, roughly around 3 to 4%, which is, um, which is quite low for, uh, you know, for Chinese record. And it should worry every uh, Chinese leader that the company, uh, the, 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 G, uh, the economy is only growing by three to four percent. If you take away some of the excesses uh, driven by the property sector, which makes up about 30 to 40 percent of the economic activity, the GDP figure is actually, I think, much lower than three percent. Um, and the Chinese leaders know that and it will be it will mean that jobs will be lost. It will mean that uh, people will earn less money. Um, and how do you resolve that problem? You have to resolve it by um, taking money from the rich, uh, from, uh, I would argue, foreign firms when it suits their purpose, and giving it to the Chinese people. And to um, shore up the nationalistic uh, sentiment, uh, they could easily target a foreign firm at whatever point they feel is convenient. And then to say that, um, uh, th these foreign investments are now confiscated by the state and then will 
hand it back to uh, the Chinese people. You can just see that kind of argument coming out uh, whenever it suits them. So I think um, common prosperity works on many levels, uh, on the political level for Xi Jinping, on the economic level when it suits them and where there's a need to uh, 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 cure some of the, the problem that is uh, inevitable for the Chinese economy because of the debt problems that you mentioned, because of the slowing GDP growth. They need a new formula in order to keep uh, uh, um, the masses uh, uh, happy. They need to have some sort of saying. Whether it will work is a different thing, but they need a saying. Uh, in Chinese politics, it's very important for them to have a saying uh, of what they're going to do, uh, what they need to do uh, in order to uh, keep things going. And I'll just add that I think um, for Xi Jinping, I think uh, common prosperity will be uh, what he will try to make a hallmark of that. And um, I think it affects every aspects of life, including uh, in Hong Kong, uh, you, you kind of see a minuscule of uh, that development happening uh, in Hong Kong because uh, the housing market in Hong Kong has always been a huge problem. It's one of the most expensive housing markets in the world. And the Communist Party are now putting the blame on the property developers in Hong Kong. Now, we've, we all know that the property developers hoard a lot of land uh, in Hong Kong. They've grown enormously rich, but that's always been the problem. Um, uh, but the Communist Party are now putting the blame on them uh, to, uh, for the problem because they no longer feel like they need to partner with the property developers to control Hong Kong. Now they, they have secure, complete and total control over Hong Kong. They can now go after the next, uh, uh, the next guy, which are the property developers, and uh, to accuse them of uh, bearing the responsibility of the, the, the problem with housing, which is, of course, much more complex than that. But they're putting the blame on them because this, I argue, is part of the common prosperity theme that is happening with the rest of the country. Um, and you know the, the property bubble, uh, the, the, the property uh, uh, market troubles that, that you recently saw with Evergrande Ever and uh, other property developers in China is actually a result of deliberate policy change. Uh, because we all know that these property developers in China are highly leveraged, leveraged to the hilt. Um, and the Chinese government knows that, but they deliberately changed the uh, debt to capital ratio that these companies are allowed to have, and they basically cut off their, their, their credit lines so that these companies immediately got themselves into trouble. Now, you would say, well, why would they do something like that? Because they know that um, uh, housing is uh, uh, generally very unaffordable for a lot of people. What I predict will happen next is that they will nationalize, effectively nationalize these companies and hand out these properties to uh, uh, ordinary Chinese people, which again is part of common prosperity. And you can just see that happening. So one, one thing to add there, um, the, I, think, I think what's interesting is the question of whether this will work and whether it will achieve the goals that, um, that Xi Jinping's laid out and my hunch is that it, it almost certainly won't because he won't be willing to go after the major um, arena of unproductive investment which is the state-owned enterprises and so a huge source of the problems in China's economy and the fact that there's a, a potentially massive bubble that could burst is the, is the fact that there's loads and loads of unproductive capital investment and the whole economic model is is based on that. And so we're seeing with Evergrande at the moment, some of that being undercut, but it's not only private firms where there's a problem. And ultimately there are questions about whether um, the government can, can ever um, tackle the issue of unproductive state investment, which is a huge problem in the Chinese economy at the moment.
That's a, that's a very good point. Um, because one can see the political attraction <clears throat> that she is um, exercising with that huge audience of the 600 million who are living such poor lives in China, $140 a month or less, um, in, in, in lowering the cost of housing or making housing available to them. But then that danger, Johnny, that you just mentioned, if you do that, uh, are, are you, will there be a plus, plus the proposed real estate taxes lead to a giant devaluation in property prices uh, and the political repercussions that might, uh, that might cause because property is the main vehicle for savings of the Chinese people. And all of a sudden, a large portion of those savings will disappear overnight. I mean, I think one of the big questions at the moment is, can they manage the unrolling of Evergrande? Uh, and it's a really big open question because, uh, yeah, you're right, that the biggest um, place where people save, save their money is in property at the moment. And so if that were to all be devalued, and for, for many people, that would be absolutely devastating. And so I think, I think it's a really interesting question. Is the state is trying to manage this. It's trying to manage it to avoid contagion. And the, the open question right now is, are we going to see like a slow and steady downturn in order to rebalance the economy, which I think what Xi Jinping wants, or will we be watching a um, more of something that gets a little bit outside of their control? Um, obviously, outsiders may not know whether or not it gets to that point, because the state obviously manages the narrative. But I think these are the questions that are, um, are, are most important right now economically. Dennis, I don't know what you, what you think on that. No, I, I mean, um, we're, we're talking about uh, uh, economic developments now, which are, are, first of all, very hard to predict. I mean, experts have been saying all sorts of things, saying that there will be a hard landing, there will be a corporate debt bubble bursting. Um, of course, the corporate debt levels are, are very high. It's, I think, around 300% of GDP, which is higher than uh, when uh, the Japanese economy uh, burst in the 1990s. Um, you're looking at a much bigger scale. But, but also the state has much more levers that they could pull in controlling uh, uh, what's happening. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those um, who say that there will be a, a hard landing, the, 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 the corporate debt level will burst, the Chinese economy will, will come to halt. I'm not one of those uh, who believe that because um, we've seen how well they managed uh, 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 these crises before by pulling all levers of the state and they actually control a lot of the uh, uh, factors there. So um, is it, uh, you know, what I'm seeing is why do they do that to property developers like Evergrande? Uh, and at the same time, knowing that it's going to cost the middle class a lot of their savings and ownership, um, what is the calculation there and what is, what is it that they are trying to achieve um, is something that I have not uh, been able to really work out. Um, and maybe uh, we need to see uh, developments uh, going forward in order to truly understand the picture. But I'm sure with everything that is to do with uh, Chinese decisions, political decisions, it is always political calculations for, from the perspective of the party. And um, they are uh, um, rarely uh, 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 take decisions that are purely that is economical or social. There's always a political aspect to it. In other words, political control is more important than economic development. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think the political control from uh, Xi Jinping's point of view is paramount from this point onwards until November 2022, when he will be um, formally confirmed as the lifetime president or get his third term, so to speak. Um, from now until November 2020, I don't expect they will ease the quarantine measures uh, for foreigners because I suspect they, they know that the healthcare system, once they open up the borders again and uh, COVID becomes uh, 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 more infectious in China, um, I think they know that the healthcare system cannot handle. They know that the vaccines uh, are probably much less effective than their Western counterpart. They know that COVID will flare up again. So that's why they are not opening uh, the quarantine uh, measures anytime until November 2022. And sadly for Hong Kong, that means uh, international travel will continue to be banned. Uh, and to a point where American companies, uh, a lot of them are saying, look, you know, this is killing Hong Kong as an international financial center, we're moving away. But the Hong Kong government these days are basically have no choice but to follow the mainland government. But um, so you can see how effectively they have um, basically taken over um, uh, uh, Hong Kong very effectively. But I think uh, it, it is important to not lose sight of the bigger picture, uh, because I think we uh, alluded to, to this uh, in the opening, which is you need to look at what's happening in the South China Sea and in Taiwan and the potential instability that we're talking about is of a geopolitical proportion. That, uh, you know, you and I were talking about Evergrande and Wall Street firms, but what's at stake is much bigger. 60% of the overseas, uh, 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 the undersea uh, internet cables go through uh, the South China Sea. And um, so, so does uh, a lot of international cargo. And also what could potentially flare up in the Taiwan Straits could be basically uh, upend the whole of Asia Pacific uh, security order. Um, and, you know, a lot of my work here is also to do with uh, foreign policy and, uh, you know, predicting what's going to happen. I've always said that, Bob, when I was in office as a lawmaker, that the international community should care about Hong Kong, because after the fall of Hong Kong, the next issue on your desk will be Taiwan. And this is exactly what's happening. 150 warplanes flew into Taiwanese airspace and, uh, uh, you know, with a, a lot of rhetoric coming out of Xi Jinping, uh, saying that we can't leave the Taiwanese question to the next generation. I think the world needs to understand that for Xi Jinping, these are not just rhetorics. I think we need to take it, take him at his word seriously. And um, because that's exactly what he said he would do to Hong Kong a couple of years back, which is to implement uh, complete control in Hong Kong. I think uh, a few years back, uh, a lot of people took it as just, you know, mere rhetoric, but now it is happening. It, it, it has happened. Of course, Hong Kong is a low-hanging fruit for them. Uh, Taiwan is a, is a very different set of considerations involving possible military action. But those are the real risks that I see that people are not taking sufficient account of. I find it very interesting from a foreign policy perspective or from the larger perspective, since as you pointed out, both of you pointed out, uh, Xi uh, considers uh, a comprehensive picture. There's not a, a political lane and then an economic lane or in the national security lane. They're all of one piece. And, and everything is put at risk in respect to Taiwan. It's a huge gamble. Uh, if they win, they, they basically win everything. They already have much of the South China Sea. 
were they to take Taiwan either peacefully or, peacefully or through an invasion, uh, Japan knows it would be in an untenable position. Um, the United States would have to retreat further eastward in the Pacific. The repercussions are absolutely massive. It would be a major step in asserting Chinese predominance. Um, however, were this to be undertaken militarily, even in pieces, take Kimoi and Matsu first, or take the Senkaku Islands, how much of a, a, a sort of a risk calculation uh, is she doing in terms of what that might mean economically for chi for China due to the Western reaction? I think what we shouldn't underestimate is the appetite for risk from uh, Xi Jinping's point of view, that he has a huge appetite for risk. And uh, internally, from one of the, some of the party, uh, internal party documents that we've managed to see, and from some of his speeches, is he's calling on um, comrades within the Communist Party to be not shy away from struggle, uh, which is a clumsy face in, in, in English, but in Chinese, is um, not shying away from struggles or uh, uh, confrontation. And if that is what he's preaching to his uh, communist colleagues, uh, comrades, um, then I think we should expect that he will take the risk necessary in order to achieve the goals of reuni reunification with Taiwan. And on the grander picture, they want to push American interests out of Asia Pacific. Um, some say that um, the equivalent of the Monroe Doctrine will uh, be true of Chinese foreign policy. And you can come to think about, you know, Americans, they, they pushed out European influence from the Western Hemisphere uh, through the, under the uh, um, Monroe Doctrine. And a lot of people say it is just natural for China to want to push American interests out of uh, the Asia Pacific, out of Japan, South Korea, out of Taiwan, out of South China Sea. But the problem with that is that the geographical calculations and consideration is much more complicated uh, in the Asia Pacific. Not only you have Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia to grapple with, you also have a whole bunch of countries around the South China Sea who would take a serious issue with China's position on the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line and the militarized um, islands. Uh, and also, as I said, um, the undersea internet cable that the world depend upon uh, goes through the South China Sea and also a lot of international cargo. So the freedom of navigation over South China Sea is an issue that involves every single nation in the world. Um, so for China to want to implement its own version of the Monroe Doctrine, the stakes are high, but um, the appetite for risk, as I said, in my experience in Hong Kong politics, I can tell you the appetite for risk are also very high from uh, this Chinese leadership. Johnny, is that the perspective from Hong Kong as well? From the experience? I mean, all I, would, all, all I would add is that I think what can't be understated is that there is resolve within the American establishment to, to respond to if there were particularly military intervention in Taiwan. And so for businesses and for others thinking through even, let's say, a 25% risk that some some kind of proper confrontation happens. They need to be thinking about what happens 
in terms of financial and economic decoupling and what that will mean for their engagement in um, in China. Um, and are they are they resilient to America using the financial leverage it has, say, in the SWIFT clearing system? Uh, are, are they resilient to that or would they be absolutely screwed if um, a confrontation happens and America declares economic and financial warfare on China? I don't know whether the majority of businesses have even thought about that as a potential scenario, but I do know congressional staffers who have be, who have dis discussed that as one of the leaders they would have in that context. And so I just don't know whether it would be interesting to find out whether the risk analysts that, that are out there in these businesses are thinking about those kind of questions. I, I would just add, Bob, that be between full-scale invasion, military invasion, and doing nothing, there's a whole lot in between, which they are capable and are actually doing. Uh, in terms of infiltration of uh, Taiwanese society, uh, breaking Taiwanese uh, society from within, uh, to um, infiltration that we're seeing in the West, uh, in countries like Canada. Uh, it is very well documented that um, Chinese state influence in these countries are, uh, are happening. Um, so the point I want to make is over Taiwan is that they, they I think they, there's a range of actions which they could take. Uh, to what point will uh, the West say, okay, this is enough. This is uh, uh, something that we cannot tolerate. I think they will keep pushing that uh, 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 line to test the reaction of uh, uh, Western governments on the question of Taiwan. And uh, we expect to see tensions continue to rise. I don't believe that um, the, the recent summit between Biden and uh, uh, Xi Jinping um, will change that course. It may cool down uh, emotions uh, a, a little bit, but I don't see how uh, that course uh, could be changed by the two of the leaders just sitting down and, and talking through Zoom. Uh, I'm not sure that will change um, uh, things very much. By the way, just as a side note, you may have noticed the recent story that China went into Italy and bought lock, stock and barrel an Italian drone company and, of course, took its China technology to, to China, uh, an action of which the Italian government was completely unaware. Just another step in perhaps the kind of economic infiltration uh, that you're speaking of. This is a really rough analogy. But when you think back to World War II, uh, Japan was attempting to create the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere and dominating Southeast Asia. Uh, and the opposition from the United States was expressed rather late in the game through economic sanctions. And it's when it in place steel and oil sanctions against Japan that Japan decided uh, our best uh, risk, the best opportunity is to strike the United States now before these sanctions make us weep, weaker. Uh, so that these, if, if we're, action were to be taken, Johnny, through the SWIFT uh, or, or other economic uh, measures that would imperil the Chinese economy and thus politically imperil Xi, might they make the same kind of calculation? We're, we're stronger now, better to utilize that strength before, before the Western reaction gets stronger and they become more capable of, of countering us. Is that a, is that a reasonable expression of the risk? 
I think I'm sure all of these conversations are being had amongst strategists um, in both China and the US. And I'm not, I'm not, I can't speak exactly to, to what they are saying, but I, I think it sounds very reasonable to me. I don't know, Dennis, if you have any other thoughts on that. I can only speak from my personal experience um, that the experts or uh, the elites in the two countries are often out of sync and also um, miscalculate um, uh, the, the factors and risks involved. I remember vividly <clears throat> that um, in 2017, I went to Beijing to attend a high-level economic summit between U.S. and China. Um, I was only a fly in the wall. I, you know, I, I was just want to listen in on what the, the elites in the two countries are thinking. So from China, there were all these top professors and uh, officials uh, in Beijing. And then uh, uh, the Americans flew out. I think there was a former uh, uh, the secretary uh, uh, for treasury um, and you know some very famous professors and uh, uh, thinkers all came out. And then um, what I felt uh, at the time, what I heard at the time is that they think Donald Trump is a joke. They think that uh, Trump is something that uh, they could handle very easily. Uh, especially on the Chinese side, there's even a sense of elation thinking that, you know, how can the Americans be so stupid in electing Donald Trump and that he's so weak, never has America had such a joke as a president. But what I think was missing from that room was a voice representing the, uh, the, 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 the Trump side of the argument. You know, basically, you know, um, they underestimated the guy. They didn't see it coming. They, this was in 2017. And these are talk, talking about the top thinkers in both countries. Uh, they often ignore and miss what's happening, uh, you know, that may be obvious to, to some people, but because of who they are and who they talk, they talk among themselves a lot. And what I saw was they completely uh, didn't see it coming. Um, and I'm just afraid that whether the, 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 um, these people are still miscalculating one another and miscalculating uh, what is happening in the politics of both countries. Um, there's a lot of talk in China amongst uh, 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 top Chinese thinkers saying that America don't have the will to fight. They are too divided. They're too uh, partisan. Look at the Fox News every day. You look at what CNN, every day it is about fighting uh, one another. Uh, you know, they, they won't have the will to fight. You know, if that is the kind of thinking that um, is fed up to the leadership of the Communist Party, will they come a point? where they think, you know, I think the Americans won't fight back if we do something in Taiwan. They are too busy fighting themselves. Uh, and if that is the kind of miscalculation that um, eventually lead to a decision, that would be devastating because um, I think they're also missing. If they really think that way, then they really don't understand American domestic politics and sentiment as well. Um, and also the sentiments uh, of people in Japan and South Korea and Aust Australia. And, um, there's a recent poll in South Korea showing that 60% uh, of South Koreans think that the CCP reg regime is evil. Uh, and the sentiment, I, I spoke to a, a group of Japanese professor at Tokyo University recently, and they tell me the sentiment in Japan is the same, that, that, that is really changing. And also, uh, I, I, I feel that um, uh, people in America also uh, have a very changed feelings and uh, sentiment. And that will be fed through because it's a democracy. It will be fed through into the politicians and officials. Uh, when they make decisions. But I don't feel that um, the, the, the Chinese thinkers are, are sufficiently aware that um, that is happening 
uh, and they continue to push for things like wolf warrior diplomacy, continue to act, basically behave badly on the international stage, which will further consolidate this kind of sentiment uh, against China. Um, if they are not sufficiently aware of this and go ahead and think or continue to assume that the American-led uh, international order will not do anything if they uh, take over Taiwan, then there will be a serious miscalculation. I'll just end by saying that from Xi Jinping's point of view, of course, the best way uh, to do this is not by military invasion, it's by a peaceful reunification. But because of what's happened to Hong Kong and that the failure of one country, two system, um, there is no, no longer any doubt that the Taiwanese people will not accept one country, two system. So everything is coming to a head. And um, Xi Jinping saying, saying that he will not leave it to the next generation. With the Taiwanese people, they're saying we will not accept one country, two system. Because if you look at Hong Kong, there's no way we're handing ourselves over to you. Then what is the situation we're looking at? A very dangerous one, I would say. Yes, I would agree with you, uh, Dennis, that for the first time in many years, there's a bipartisan consensus in foreign policy regarding China. It's really crossed the aisle. Republicans and Democrats are agreeing about the nature of this threat, perhaps not unanimously on what ought to be done in respect to it, but the, the, the sense of danger is, is very keen. Let me close by asking this last question or making this remark, as I have asked the same thing of other experts on China that we have had on this program. I believe it was Deng Xiaoping who said, just quiet, develop our strength and, and, and quietly. Uh, don't show your hand until you're strong enough that uh, showing your hand won't have any negative repercussions for you. And I've always thought, what, why didn't uh, Xi just wait five, 10 more years when there wouldn't have been any prospect of a serious strategic pushback to what he's attempting to achieve? Uh, and the answer I've gotten uniformly is he thinks, well, it, it's, that's already happened. It's too late for America to react, that they are indeed weakened in precisely the ways that you have said, Dennis, so that there's no danger for us in showing our strength now. In fact, there, there's only an advantage to doing it. Deng uh, Xiaoping's foreign policy, on, I would argue uh, also is his policy towards Hong Kong and domestic policy is one of pragmatism. It was pragmatism, uh, um, you know, we should be prosperous, we should hide our strength and bide our time. Uh, Xi Jinping has effectively uh, pushed back, uh, uh, completely turned the tables on uh, uh, his policy towards Hong Kong and his policy, uh, foreign policy. And the reason why, why didn't they wait for another 10 years before they show their, their swords? Uh, by then we'll be toast. Um, uh, to that, I would say that, um, he doesn't have that kind of time because his personal political agenda that is that he wants to secure a third and fourth term or a lifetime president, okay? So if he just continue with what Hu Jintao and Zhang Jimin did uh, for another decade, he will be pushed out because he would have no uh, basis to say that, give me another term and I will uh, really uh, change policy. He needs to change the policy narrative so that um, he can say to the Chinese people, look, 120 years ago, we were beaten down by the imperial powers. They came and contained us, took away and split our country. Now that we're strong, now that we're prosperous, look at these guys again, they are at it. 
in trying to contain us. But don't you worry, you have a strong leader in me and I'm gonna take care and protect the country. And that kind of feeds into the, the, the narrative that uh, in, into everything that he's doing. Uh, I would say that he, he knows that um, foreign relationship with a lot of Western countries will be bad, but he play it in such a way that um, he's using invoking memories of the, 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 the century of shame and humiliation that the Chinese people went through. And uh, he's saying, look, they're doing it again, but don't you worry, you've got me. And that's why he is um, taking the position he's taking. Um, it is all through a domestic political calculation. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time, and I want to thank Dennis Kwok and Johnny Patterson for joining us today to discuss the risks of investing in China. I invite our viewers, by the way, to go to the Westminster Institute website and to our YouTube channel, where you will find many other programs on, on China, Russia, the Middle East, and other topics we cover. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Robert Riley, the director of Westminster Institute.